Well, I already mentioned that this week I flew out to the ninth and final together for the gospel conference. On the T4G website, the purpose of the gathering is stated as follows. And I quote, every year, every other year, pastors and church leaders from over 25 denominations, all 50 states, and 62 nations gather together for the gospel. While we have our differences, we are committed to standing together for the main thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ, end quote. In other words, there's a massive gathering of thousands of Christians, again, 25 denominations across 50 states, across multiple nations, again, they said some 62 nations, gather together and are able to affirm at least one thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is preaching centered around the significance of the gospel. There are songs sung by a whole mass of the thousands gathered focused on the gospel. I don't know if you've ever been to a large conference of that sort, but there's something about hearing the voices of thousands singing praise to God. Singing songs like, His mercy is more. And Christ, our hope in life and death, which is one that I hope that we'll be able to teach you soon. It's a beautiful song. The majority of this mass of people are men, Though there are, of course, some women and children, it's primarily pastors in their respective congregations. And again, there's something glorious about hearing so many in one place with one voice lifting up the name of Jesus. As I've said before, the gospel is of central importance to the Christian faith. That's those who attend affirm this fact by gathering together and not focusing on what they disagree on, but focusing on what they do agree on, on the gospel. You might ask, how are they able to do this? What about the differences? Again, with 25 denominations, there are going to be differences. They don't agree on everything. There are discussions, open discussions, about some of the things that they disagree on. I mean, we wouldn't even affirm or practice everything that each of the speakers of the conference believes, but we would affirm the same gospel. And that is exactly the point of the conference. That's how they make it work. The gospel is central. The gospel is the focus So we can gather together and worship together and think about this central truth together. Now, while the T4G conference is not the local church, that's what we cannot draw an exact parallel to what happens in a conference like that and to what happens in a local church. The reality is that this is how unity works. We maintain unity within the body of Christ as we keep our focus and attention on one thing, the good news of Jesus Christ. His person and his work. It's that simple. Last week we looked at Paul's admonition in Philippians 1, 27 through 30. There we are commanded to live in a manner worthy of the gospel as citizens of the kingdom. As believers, as those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, as those for whom Christ died, having taken our sin upon himself, having died himself, our sin dying with him, having rose again from the dead, his sacrifice having been accepted, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and his righteousness offered to all who trust in him. As those who trust in him, as citizens of his kingdom, our lives ought to communicate the gospel. They ought to commend the gospel. The gospel ought to be visible in our lives. And don't miss that the gospel is at the center of Paul's argument in this text. Their fellowship in the gospel ministry is, of course, what maintained their relationship with Paul, this church. 
The church of Philippi knows the importance of gospel ministry. Here Paul is calling upon their understanding of the importance of gospel ministry in order to instruct them and encourage them. Listen, and if you miss everything else I say from here on, listen into this, and then you can check out. You can take your nap. It's totally fine. I won't throw anything at you, at least not this Sunday. But this is of first importance. The power of God is at work through the gospel. We discussed the great exchange on Good Friday, 2 Corinthians 5.20. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God has given Christ our sin. He caused him to be sin. The wrath of God for sin is satisfied by the death of Christ, since God poured out his wrath for sin on Jesus. This is how forgiveness of sin is offered. Not because God overlooks sin, but because his wrath is satisfied in Christ. The burning anger of God for sin, as coals of a fire are extinguished by a hose of water, have been extinguished as Christ hung on the cross and died. Since our sins were laid on him, we no longer have sin to speak of. Additionally, his righteousness, that he kept the law of God, that he always lived to do the will of his Father, is now granted to those who trust in Jesus as their Savior, as the one who died for their sins. Therefore, as Jesus rose again, never to die again, eternal life is granted to those who trust in Jesus, having been clothed in his righteousness. It is eternal life, a qualitatively different kind of life. In John 1, John the Apostle says it this way. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, referring to Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In John 3, Jesus refers to this as being born again, or being born from above. Paul says it this way in another passage. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. In theology, we refer to this as regeneration, because it is a new kind of life that is granted to the one who has faith in Jesus. In Titus, Paul says it this way. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is a new kind of life. Really, it is Jesus' life given to us. Paul says in Colossians 3, Christ is our life. Therefore, our life here on earth, before we even get to heaven, ought to be different. Yes? 1 John 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's pretty clear, right? If you say you abide in him, the him there is referring to Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's how John refers to him in chapter two. If you say you abide in Jesus Christ, the righteous, then you ought to walk as Jesus Christ, the righteous walked. You ought to live as he lived. We understand that this is not perfection, but it is identification. And there is a progression moving from being a little like Jesus to more like Jesus. That's what we call sanctification in theology. In other words, sanctification, the process of sanctification, is not moving from being nothing like Jesus to being a little like Jesus. If you are nothing like Jesus, then you don't belong to him. You haven't been born again. But the process of sanctification starts after new life has been granted, 
And we're moving from being a little like Jesus to being more like Jesus. That's the progression. The effect of the gospel, in other words, faith in Christ through the gospel, affects new life. Regeneration, the creation of new life in the heart of man, and it is the life of Jesus, a new righteous life. Now, I labored through all of that for a number of reasons. First, again, I just came back from a conference on being together for the gospel, and we talked about the gospel a lot. And we affirmed that we must talk about the gospel as if it were of first importance. And I want you all to know that I believe it is of first importance. Certainly, if you don't know yourself to be consciously trusting in Jesus as Savior, if you're not trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross, if you don't know yourself to have the righteousness which comes from God that is only received on the basis of faith, if you're not truly in Christ, trusting in Christ, then you need to know what that means. Come see me after service. It is a matter of life and death. Things like cancer can kill the body. A bullet can kill the body. Old age can kill the body as the functions of the body diminishes. But an angry God whose wrath concerning your sin has not been satisfied, he will destroy both body and soul in eternal torment. Either Jesus satisfies the wrath of God concerning your sin, or you will forever. Second reason why I labor over this point should be obvious. If we have the new life of Jesus in us, then it ought to affect the way we live our daily lives. And to the point of this next section in Philippians 2, 1 through 11, the new life of Jesus in us ought to reflect, ought to affect the way we pursue unity in the body of Christ. This church was struggling in some ways with unity among believers. As I pointed out last week, Paul will call out two women in particular by name because of some issues of disunity. These were likely not the only two, but whatever the issue was, it was significant enough for him to feel like he had to mention them by name and try to encourage them with the importance of unity. Now, all of that was introduction, but that is where we're going with this, the message this morning. Picking up on the admonition from that transitional section in verses 27 through 30 of chapter 1 in Philippians, Paul is going to say in our text for this morning, That in order to live worthy of the gospel as citizens of heaven, we must pursue unity within the body of Christ, having the attitude of Christ. That's it. Pursue unity by imitating Jesus Christ. Keep your focus and attention on Christ. Unity will happen. Let's read the section together. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort of love, any participation in the Spirit, Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Father, again, we come before you as we come before your word and ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Believers are to pursue unity within the body of Christ by imitating Jesus Christ. That's the message of this section of scripture. A simple outline of this text Again, how do we pursue unity within the body of Christ? Chapter 2, verse 1, rest in the unity of Christ. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 11, that's the largest section, reach for the unity in Christ. And then we'll break that down a little bit further. Rest in the unity that we already have in Christ, and then reach for the unity that we have in Christ. Let's take a look at that first point. Believers pursue unity in the body of Christ by resting in the unity of Christ. Of Christ. Verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and compassion. Each of these statements are all intended to describe the same thing. We've all been affected by the salvation that is in Christ. We've all been made new. We've all been given new life. We've all been unified by the Spirit of Christ. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, that is encouragement that comes from Christ. This is the encouragement that comes from knowing him, from having a relationship with him. It is an encouragement that all who have been made alive in Christ possess. In Ephesians, Paul talks about the hopelessness of the unbelieving world when he says that they are without God and without hope in the world. But not so for the believer. The believer has hope as a fountain and encouragement as a spring overflowing in the heart. That doesn't mean we never struggle. That does mean that the knowledge that God is with us in Christ is enough to give encouragement to the soul of any believer. The coming of Jesus was foretold by the prophet Isaiah. He is called in Isaiah the Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. And he was called Emmanuel, again, God with us. At his birth, we are told in Luke that the coming of Jesus brings peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. Again, we sing the song, sing we the song of Emmanuel. Go spread the news of Emmanuel, joy and peace for the weary heart. Lift up your heads, for your king has come. Sing for the light overwhelms the dark. Glory shining for all to see. Hope alive, let the gospel ring. God has made a way. He will have the praise. Tell the world his name is Jesus. There is joy and peace to be had for the weary heart. Hope is alive. Thus we proclaim the truths of the gospel to all, to every tribe, and every tongue, and every nation, because Emmanuel, God is with us. God has come and has brought his encouragement with him. He has brought joy, peace, and hope with him. Look at that next phrase, if there is any comfort from love. This phrase is closely related to the first In fact, the word translated comfort is similar to the word we translated encouragement in the previous phrase. These terms are working in parallel. In other words, the comfort of love is the comfort of the love that we have from Christ through the gospel. I've mentioned this before, but we cannot know the love of God apart from the gospel. 
The world is so backwards in its understanding of what true love is. They suppose that true love stands in opposition to any form of judgment or condemnation of action. They suppose that love stands in contradiction to discussion of sin. However, scripture is clear that the love of God is demonstrated. It is shown to us through the death of his son. Romans 5.8 But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The fact that we are sinners is what prompted God to send Jesus. The fact that we are sinners is what prompted God to send Jesus to die for us. We cannot talk about his love, his display of love apart from that. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You cannot love God on your own. God does not love you as you are, no matter what popular culture tells you. God proves his love to us. He provides his love to us. He provides his salvation for us to make us better than we are, to give us new life in Jesus Christ. He satisfies his anger about our sin in Jesus Christ. That's what propitiation means. It means that the death of Christ on the cross satisfied God's anger about our sin. That is love. That is God's love. There's comfort in knowing that we are recipients of God's love through Jesus. You never have to doubt God's love in Jesus because God has sent his best. He sent Jesus, his son, to die for our sins. Again, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, look at the next phrase. Any participation in the spirit. What does that mean? The word translated participation is the same word that we get our term fellowship from. Other translations use the term fellowship or sharing. The idea is that we have fellowship with, we share in the spirit of Christ through the gospel, through our salvation, through faith in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, in Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I don't know if you remember the passage in Ezekiel 36 that I read earlier where God promised to sprinkle our hearts with clean water. He promised to send his spirit. That is a part of the promise of salvation. And that promise was fulfilled in Christ when he pours out his spirit upon those who believe. And this text in Ephesians chapter 1 says that the spirit is a down payment guaranteeing our inheritance. In other words, you go to um, an auto store. I'm completely forgetting the word. What, what are those places called? The places where you go to buy a car? Car dealership. There we go. Um, you go to a car dealership to buy a car. And what do they ask you to do if you want to buy a car? You have to put a down payment down, right? They're not just going to take your word for it. You're not just going to be like, hey, yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll pay you for this later. And they give you the keys and you drive off. You have to put a down payment down. And the down payment says, I will commit to paying in full so that I'll own this car by the end of the payments. Well, God gives us a down payment. And the down payment says, I will commit to redeeming you in full. And that down payment is the Holy Spirit. That's the comfort that we have. All of us as believers are sealed in him 
with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance. If you are in Christ, then you will have the Spirit of Christ. Back to our text again. Any encouragement in Christ? Any comfort from love? Any participation in the Spirit? Any affection and sympathy? I take these last two words also to be in parallel, meaning that these are the affection and sympathy, or I like the translation better, mercy and compassion of God to us in Christ. These we also experience from him through our salvation. Both of these words suggest an internal compulsion towards mercy, to look upon the state of another and to desire good for them. You remember how the Lord referred to himself and Moses asked to see his glory in the book of Exodus? Moses was literally asking to see the glory of God. The Lord hid Moses in a cleft of a rock so as not to completely destroy him. And he passed before him and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love is a theme that continues throughout the Old Testament. And it's one that finds its fulfillment in the salvation of Christ. God is compassionate and merciful. Paul calls him the father of mercies and the God of all comforts in 2 Corinthians 1. In other words, in all of these things, the salvation of God is powerful. It powerfully works within us. It brings us encouragement in Christ, comfort from his love, participation in the spirit, along with mercy and compassion of the Lord. We have these things in abundance in Christ. If these things are ours in abundance, these truths that we relish, that we sing about, on Sunday after Sunday. I mean, we just sang the song, my heart is filled with thankfulness to him who bore my pain, who plumbed the depths of my disgrace and gave me life again, who crushed my curse of sinfulness and clothed me in his light and wrote the law of righteousness with power upon my heart. We sing these praises and other praises to him who so deliberately and decisively demonstrated his love toward us in Christ. If we have so experienced the love of God, how can we dare not show it to others? It's hard not to see that this is where Paul is driving. He says, look, guys, we've all experienced the same thing. We've all experienced the encouragement, comfort, strength of, the, of his spirit, the affection and compassion of the Lord. We've all experienced it in Christ. We've all together known these comforts from the Lord. So really, we're without excuse. We ought to be resting in the unity that we have in Christ. God has given us an organic unity in the body of Christ so that our life together would be easy and unity would simply flow. That is what Jesus prayed for in John 17, that we would be one as he and the Father are one. Jesus' prayer didn't fail, did it? I read you the passage from Ephesians 4 last week where Paul simply said, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You can't preserve something that you don't have. When you read in a jar in a supermarket something that claims to have preserved the freshness, we all know what that means, right? They mean that the food was fresh when they put it into the container, and the process that they use to seal it, to preserve it, is intended to keep it fresh, so that when you open it to consume it, you will taste the same original freshness. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is unity in the spirit already. We just need to be diligent to preserve it, to keep it, to keep it fresh. <clears throat> Moving on, look back at our text, verse 2 through the end, and we'll see our next point. Not only should we rest in the unity of Christ, but we also have the responsibility to reach 
for unity in Christ. This is our responsibility. This is our diligence. This is how we show our diligence to preserve unity. Look at what he says, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to the end. Quoting what many believe to be an ancient hymn of Christ, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Reach for unity in Christ. How do we do that? A few things. First, consider the truth. Look again at verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. As a good pastor and friend to this group of believers at Philippi, Paul doesn't hesitate to use their friendship as leverage to encourage them in the Lord. He says, you already have unity, you need to keep it going. This is what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It is to be unified as a church. That is what I want for you. That is my desire for you. Make my joy complete in this way. He uses the term mind twice in this verse. He wants to address the way they're thinking about life. He'll return to the significance of how we think about life in the rest of this letter at multiple times. But here he says you all need to be thinking the same way about who you are and how you are living. That will directly impact your unity. You have unity in the spirit, unity through the effect that the gospel had in each of your lives. The same effect, the same experience of the goodness of the Lord. Remember that. Think on that. These are things that you can all agree on. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord of one mind. This is a call to be unified, particularly around the truth of God's word. The church must be on one accord with who God is, who we are in Christ, and what our mission is so that we can move forward in unity. I touched on this briefly last week, but that's why we need to have regular gatherings. This is why it's so important we are gathered regularly around God's word so that we can be instructed by his truth together to be thinking about life together, our new life in Christ, to be thinking about how to live out this new life in Christ together in the same way, pursuing the same big picture as the people of God so that we can encourage each other. Hebrews 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How do we hold fast our confession? How do we do that? He says you do that by gathering together with each other. You hold fast to the truth of God by gathering together and encouraging one another in the truth of God. That's why we gather together and we listen to God's word together. That's why we gather together and we sing hymns that, again, reflect God's truth, God's word together. That's why we pray and we pray on the basis of God's word together. That's why when people are missing from the fellowship, they struggle more. They have difficulty more. They are discouraged more. They have a hard time getting through life more because they're not gathering together and receiving the grace that God gives through the fellowship of believers. Reach for the unity that is in Christ. Again, that is our responsibility. That is our diligence as we gather together to consider the truth, seeking to have the same mind with regards to the truth. 
as we encourage one another in the truth, we maintain unity. Second, reach for the unity in Christ by considering one another. Look at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. These words are probably some of the most significant words in Scripture that directly deal with relationships, any relationships. We could discuss any number of scenarios where the relationship issues and point to these verses with how to address them. Here is the point, though I think it should be clear. When working together with someone in any relationship, consider the other person as more important than yourself and consider the other person's interests. It's that simple. Think about them as more important than yourself and consider their interests. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition, desiring things for your own use or benefit. Conceit, which is pride. These are the main problems. These issues are common to the human experience, whether in Paul's day or ours. We all tend to be selfish, self-oriented in nature. We all tend to be conceited, thinking of things in terms of how it affects us alone. Paul's point is that the world doesn't revolve around you. You are not the center of the universe. Contrary to popular culture, popular psychology, you are not the most important person to care for in this life. Christ did not save us for self-care and self-preservation. I'll just let that sink in for a minute. There's so much that could be said here, but the Christian ethic demands that we be others-centered, not self-centered. And the only way to be others-centered is, as Paul says, through humility of mind. When we begin to think right thoughts about ourselves, thoughts that do not place us above others in value, then we can begin to have humble thoughts, and we can begin to ascribe value to others and see them as more important than ourselves. That starts with thinking rightly about the truth, as we've already discussed, as we have one mind with regards to the truth of who God is, who Christ is, as we see ourselves as small in comparison to him. As, again, not the center of the universe. Every knee will bow and tongue will confess to Jesus, not to us. As we acknowledge that and we realize that Jesus' name should be lifted high, that we should be seeking to magnify his name, not our own, then we can begin to think right thoughts about ourselves and about others. Moving on, let each of you look not to his own interests, but also the interests of others. We should not only consider them as a person as more important than ourselves, but also their interests, meaning the things that are in their best interest, things that will benefit them. He doesn't instruct them to think about the other person's interests first or well. He says, you guys aren't even thinking about their interests at all. You're only thinking about your own interests. In a corporate world, particularly in a sales environment, the idea is to consider what's in it for me. How can you address what's in it for the potential customer? You need to be thinking about what's in it for them so you can tailor your sales pitch, right? Well, this isn't about a sales pitch. This is about real life. This is about us knowing how to engage and interact with each other. And one of the most important things that we can do in relationship to one another is think about what is best for the other person and not just what is best for us. That's Paul's point. In context, there were clearly relational issues, and the issues stem from those not doing this. 
They were not considering one another as more important. They were not considering the interests of one another. They wanted it their own way because they felt that they were the most important person. And as a result, there were conflict. I'll give you a few real-life examples that drive this home, and these are just general examples. A family decides to move to another state for work or else to improve their living conditions. The kids have good friends, thus conflict is imminent. Why? Because the first thought of the kid is that they're going to lose out. They're going to miss out on their friends, their comforts, the familiarity of the area, so they become disgruntled and angry precisely because they're considering themselves and their interests above that of the family. They're not even considering what's good for the family, only what's good in their eyes, and conflict abounds. What's necessary in those cases? In those cases, just like anything else, and maybe it's not the kids, but maybe it's the extended family that gets upset because the kids are moving away, right? You guys have heard that before. But what's necessary? Well, first, you have to be of one accord. The family has to be of one accord. The parents and the children have to be clear what kind of family they're going to be, what they're going to pursue in life, what their family goals are. They need to be talking about those things. The kids need to understand that. This is who we are as a family. This is where we're going. This is why we're doing this as a family. As you help them to understand that and you help them to understand their part, their role in the family, then they're able to buy in. Then they feel a little more engaged, involved in what the family is doing, when the family has to make those kinds of decisions. And in all of those things, as we help our family to understand what their role is, what their part is, we have to help them to understand that they're not the center of the family. Again, popular culture will tell you that children have to be the center of the family, that the world, the world revolves around them and their wants and their needs, but not so. That's not biblical. That's not godly. It's not going to help them. It's not going to help you as a family. Christ is at the center. Or perhaps this scenario, maybe you've heard this before, a husband likes a certain lifestyle or maybe the wife likes a certain lifestyle there's a demand that they both work outside of the home. They both persist and abound in their respective careers to maintain, maintain that lifestyle. Maybe the wife desires to stay home with their children, but she struggles to keep him happy or, or whatever the situation is. But there's clearly a difference in goals for the family. And conflict abounds when they make decisions. Conflict abounds as they continue. And the world might rightly might say that he is right in pursuing the American dream, that the family should be pursuing success. Maybe it would say that, you know, she gets upset and fed up and decides to leave, and you can't blame her for that. But the word of God would say that they started going off when they weren't of one accord, right? They didn't have the same goals. They weren't tracking with each other with where they were going as a family, and also, they were thinking more about their own interests and not the interests of one another. And the Word of God is cause, calling us to consider that, to reconsider that. Maybe it's not lifestyle. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's parenting. My way is the right way. My parents did it better than yours, so we have to do it this way. Again, they're not on one accord. It starts there. It starts there and it leads with some hard conversations about what's in the best interests of one another and of the family. And there are many ways that we can apply this to the church, right? Church meetings that have devolved into arguing and bitterness over someone's desire to enforce their will above others. Again, carpet color, we've talked about that before. 
who serves at what church function. Often people who give significantly feel that they should be the ones making the final decisions on church matters. And of course, there's always the old, we've always done it this way argument, right? I'm comfortable with it this way because we've always done it that way. But again, not being on one accord, not considering the needs of others above your own, only thinking about yourself. Understand that if there are two people in a situation, maybe multiple people, and one is considering the other as more important than themselves, and that one is considering the other's interests as more important than their own interests, then everyone's going to be satisfied. If there are two people engaged, a husband and wife, for example, in a relationship, the husband is seeking to honor his wife above all, seeking for her best interests. She is seeking to honor her husband above all, seeking his best interests. Both of them will have their needs met, right? But if they're both seeking their own, nobody's going to get their needs met. That's the way it works. You want to live a gospel worthy life? Do you desire to reach unity in the spirit? Paul says, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Consider the interests of others in every decision, in every pursuit for the glory of Christ and our good. Now move on to the last bit here in verses 5 through 11. Again, reach for unity that is in Christ by considering the truth, considering one another, and lastly, considering Christ himself. That's verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now I know that there are seven verses here and we don't have much time to unpack them all. That was somewhat intentional. We don't need to pick through each of the seven verses to get to the point. I know some seminary students and some pastors who would probably love to take a sermon for each verse in this section. This section has been discussed in great detail, so many people trying to figure out what each word and thought means, but I don't want to spend a great deal on the weeds of the section because I think that'll cause us to miss the point. The point is that we can have unity through humility, and that we as believers, as those who have been made new in Christ, as those who have been given the life of Christ, we can be humble because Jesus was humble. That's the point. Jesus in his incarnation modeled humility and was exalted for it. Believers have his example and his life in us to do the same. That is what we do. We are to live humbly with one another, trusting that God will exalt us all in his time. Let's look at again this passage, this section briefly. Verse 5, have the mind of Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He says the mind, the mind of Jesus is yours. He says you can... Be humble precisely for this reason. We have the life of Jesus. We have the mind of Jesus. So we ought to live like it. Verses 6 through 8. What is the mind of Jesus all about? Well, Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself in two ways. First, in taking on flesh. 
who although he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, Jesus existed in the form of God, and by that I take it to refer to his pre-incarnate existence as spirit in all glory. He did not have a physical form, but he did not regard that spirit form, a thing to be grasped or held onto, but an obedience took the form of a servant. In other words, he was born in the flesh. We read earlier that Jesus for us and for our salvation came down. We talk about him becoming truly God, him being truly God and becoming truly man. That shows significant humility. Jesus took on dirty, smelly flesh, became subject to weariness, hunger, and thirst, though he showed a superiority over these things in subjection to the word of God. Second, he humbled himself by going to the cross. Again, verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was not enough for him to come in the flesh. He also had to die in the flesh. And not just die, but die a criminal's death. Die by means of execution on the cross. The text says he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How humiliating is that? To be the Lord of glory, the second member of the Trinity, the one to whom all praise is due. The one who existed in glory from before the foundations of the world. To humble yourself by coming into the world to take on flesh. And then by the same humans who you created to be slain on a cross. That's humility. That is Jesus our Savior. If Jesus did it, so can we. But it's more than that. Look again at verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The example and experience of Jesus is that through humility comes exaltation. It's not through exalting oneself that you receive good. That's the way of the world. I have to get my own glory. I have to do what benefits me first, not so for the Christian. The way of the Christian is the way of Christ. First comes the cross, then comes glory. The text says, therefore, the therefore is there because of what was previously stated. Jesus humbled himself, therefore God exalted him. Now, we as believers are not looking to be the exalted Lord of creation as Jesus was, right? We're not looking to gain a name for ourselves that is above every other name. That slot has already been filled. Jesus and Jesus alone occupies that space. The point in context is that as we humble ourselves, entrusting ourselves to the Lord, knowing that we will have everything we ever need, then God provides for us. We often struggle with humility and letting others have their way first because we think that we're going to miss out. But that's not the experience of Jesus, nor will it be our experience in him. Peter says in 1 Peter 4 that if we suffer while doing good, that we are to entrust our souls to a faithful creator. He goes on to say in chapter 5 that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And he calls us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that at the proper time he may exalt you. We don't need to worry about whether or not we'll get what we need. And seeking to preserve unity, we only need to consider Jesus. He humbled himself and was exalted. God will do the same for us. He will take care of our needs. 
Again, walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Pursue unity. Pursue unity by resting in the unity of the Spirit and reaching for unity in Christ. God has done his work in unifying us. We have work to do also in pursuing Christ's likeness. Consider his truth. Make sure that you are pursuing one mind in Christ. Consider one another. Seek to be humble with one another. Stop being selfish, in other words. Consider Christ. Consider the humility that he showed and know that we have his mind and can live in the same way that he did. I'll leave you with this quote. One author said, don't forget, cries Paul, that in all this wide universe and in all the dim reaches of history, there has never been such a demonstration of self-effacing humility as when the Son of God, in sheer grace, descended to this errant planet. Remember that never, never in a million eons would he have done it if he were the kind of deity who looks only to his own interests and closes his eyes to the interests of others. You must remember, my brethren, that through your union with him, in living redemptive experience, this principle and passion by which he was moved must become the principle and passion by which we are moved. Do you desire unity in your church and in your relationships? Be like Christ. Be humble. Live as he lived. You have his life inside of you, Christian, so you can do it. Amen? Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks for Jesus. Thank you for him, who although he existed in the form of God, took on the form of a servant, came in the likeness of men, humbled himself by becoming as a servant, humbled himself by dying on a criminal's cross. He did all of that to honor you. He did all of that in pursuit of your will, your purposes. He did all of that for us and for our salvation. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the new life that we have in him. Help us to continue to rejoice in him and help us more than anything to live as he lived. In Christ's name, amen.